for me, my motivation was more like that of a story midwife that I want to capture this correctly. I want to help the people who were involved in this. And that includes FBI agents, detectives, volunteers who searched for Polly. Um, you know, I talked to the media. I talked to a whole bunch of people who really deeply cared. And I, I wanted to help them tell their story. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Tourist Information. My guest this week is Kim Cross, who has a new book out called In Light of All the Darkness, Inside the Polyclass Kidnapping and the Search for America's Child. We're just past the 30th anniversary of Class's kidnapping and murder. On October 1st, 1993, a 12-year-old girl was kidnapped at knife point from her bedroom in Petaluma, California, during a sleepover with two friends while her mother slept soundly in the room next door. This rarest of all kidnappings, a stranger abduction from the home, triggered one of the largest manhunts in FBI history. And Kim has approached this as somebody that is not a true crime obsessive. She is not Michelle McNamara, who had a lifelong addiction to crime and a massive appetite for it. Kim just happened to have a father-in-law who was instrumental in this case and her proximity to so much access with all of the skills that she brought to bear. um, She had to deal with this reckoning that for a definitive portrait of what this case meant on so many different levels, she was in a unique position to address that and paid a serious toll. We talk about that. This is dark, dark shit to delve into. And she is not um, trying to capture a wave with it. Um, she really was deeply invested and brought all of her chops to bear um, in this story on, on from so many different angles. And I'm so intrigued by this because we have... Um, Polyclass is a very legitimate victim for America to be concerned with, but there are so many victims that nobody ever hears about, especially if they're not white, especially if they're not female, and especially if they're not young. That is what America has an appetite for. And it's interesting, I I bring up at one point with Kim how only three years earlier, Twin Peaks was the first sort of procedural crime show where everybody was talking not just about the victim, you know, who killed her, but who was Laura Palmer. And to explore that question, you had to understand the grief of a community that had lost her. This is not typical in the true crime genre, where it's who killed her is our our most interesting character, and then who's going to capture the bad guy. And with Kim, there's just a lot of gray in this story too there's yes, looking back 30 years later offers a, a wholly new perspective and, and I love this word a strenony to look at an old thing with new eyes uh, which Russian literature was so c- concerned with I, I feel like she's able to do that and the fact that she is not a passionate obsessive of the genre um, you have an outsider's eyes you have somebody who's maybe a little bit more clinical than passionate in this um, offers so much to it. It's a f- fabulous story. And 
Just in closing, Kim Cross is a New York Times bestselling author and journalist known for meticulously reported narrative nonfiction. She's a full-time, free-time, full-time freelance writer. She has bylines in the New York Times, Neiman Storyboard, Outside, Bicycling, Garden and Gun, CNN.com, ESPN, USA Today. And um, I'm really glad that I had a chance to talk with her about this book. I've been working on some true crime stuff myself for the last three years and in a very different way than her. Um, she was suffocated with material and I've had to dig in to a story that doesn't want to be told. And it's interesting to see what she had to contend with versus um, a plight that has kept me up a fair bit the last few years. So I hope you enjoy Kim Cross, this week's guest on Tourist Information. So I guess we're the day after the 30th anniversary of this case. So I'm just wondering how you're feeling right now uh, with this going out into the world, um, given the gravity of this case. Yeah, um, thanks for asking. Um, My heart literally hurts right now. Like there's an ache in my chest and I'm trying not to cry. (laughs) Um, Yesterday was really heavy. I was driving home from a reporting trip in um, out of state. And so luckily I was distracted by the reporting I had to do, but I just kept thinking about Polly and this was her last day. And what was she doing? You know, oh, she'd be getting up right now and having breakfast. Oh, she'd be at lunch, you know, planning her sleepover with Kate and Jillian. Oh, she'd be coming from home, home from school and cleaning her room. And I just couldn't stop thinking about her all day, but I couldn't call people because I was driving <laughs> in remote parts of, um, rural Idaho and I I couldn't really call anyone. So I just had a lot of time to think. Yeah. I mean, this little girl would be 42 years old now. Yeah. Very heady, heady thing. Um, So why don't you just lay out um, a kind of summary of this book for people that might be unfamiliar with, with her story? Sure. So um, in 1993, a 12 year old girl was kidnapped at knife point from her bedroom by a stranger who walked into the room with a knife and took her. And it happened during the middle of a sleepover with two friends, um, Kate and Jillian, who were also 12. And they witnessed the whole thing. And the girls were um, hooded with pillowcases, gagged and bound by the kidnapper. And they told Jillian and Kate to lay face down on the floor and count to a thousand, and that he would be right back with Polly by the time they stopped counting. And then he took her. And at some point they stopped counting and ran into the next bedroom over where Polly's mother was asleep with her sister and woke her up and said, Polly's gone. She's been taken. And um, the kidnapping was really significant because it was a very, very rare stranger abduction from the home um, of a victim who was not engaged in any at-risk behaviors. And it really shocked the nation because it violated the sanctity of home. Um, You know, how could just a stranger come in and take someone who's at home with parents, you know, and um, I think it created kind of a culture of fear um, and I think ended the era of free range childhood, which is when when I grew up. Yeah, that's that implication. I kept thinking a lot about reading Jonathan Haidt's book, The the Coddling of the American Mind and, and just the impact of all these parents who grew up, as you say, with such freedom. I mean, even I think you and I close enough in age where when did we leave home to go on a bike ride for 10 blocks? I I think I was five. 
mm-hmm. which would now result in me being taken away from home if my parents permitted it. It's <laughs> fascinating. Yeah, I was uh, when I was Polly's age, I lived in Santa Barbara. And um, we had just moved there, so I didn't even know the city very well. And we had moved there from Alabama, so I really didn't know the city very well. It's my kind of first city. And I was allowed to ride my bike several miles to, to school, I think about five miles on a pretty busy road. And then when I was in seventh grade, I walked to school and I walked probably five miles by myself all over town um, and really didn't ever feel unsafe, um, didn't carry mace you know, didn't, didn't ever feel afraid and didn't ever get the sense that my parents were afraid. So um, it was, you know, a very different world, I think, from the world after Polly. Yeah. And I mean, even as since around this time, the early nineties, violent crime has been, and even property crime has been cut down in half. And yet the perception by most Americans is that crime has gone up. It's never been more dangerous when in fact it might, you could argue, might never have been more safe historically for children than it is now. And yet their attitude to their own well-being and safety, um, largely inculcated by the culture and their parents, is is fascinating. The depression, the anxiety, the suicidal ideation that um, at least in part seems to contribute, uh, is contributed by that perception of danger. Um, uh, I just wonder when this story first found you in life? Um, Well, it's interesting because I remember it happening. Um, I was a junior in high school in Florida and I remember seeing it on the news and I remember thinking, oh, that's, you know, that's horrible. And like the rest of the nation, I was kind of, you know, transfixed and shocked that this could happen. But I was also a junior in high school and, you know, went about my like small life there. Um, When I was, gosh, in my early 20s, I married, or actually my late 20s, I married Eddie Fryer Jr., who is the son of FBI agent Eddie Fryer Sr., who was the case agent in charge of the case for the FBI. And I didn't really think much about the story from a writer's perspective. It just was part of the family. It felt like an in-law almost. Um, Polly Class is a name that uh, never fails to come up every time we gather as a family. It's just like part of the DNA. And so um, it wasn't until, let's see, I think we'd been married for something like 15 years um, or right around there when um, I published my first book, What Stands in a Storm, which is a narrative nonfiction account of the biggest tornado outbreak on record. And I, you know, discovered that my my thing is meticulously reported narrative nonfiction. And for, for whatever reason, you know, I am drawn to trauma that forges really powerful responses from a community. And I guess after that book came out, Eddie Jr., my husband said, you should think about the polyclass story as your next book. And I literally think I rocked back on my heels and was like, whoa, that's, I don't really do true crime. I don't read true crime. Um, it's not something I've been drawn to as a, as a writer. I had to do one crime story as an intern for the New Orleans Times Picayune and I was like nope not for me and it was actually like it went really well and was really easy it wasn't even a hard hard one so I thought about it and I thought well I always like to fact check my assumptions and and decide what I'm not choosing so I just did a little bit of background research to see like well what's been written what's out there what is this case about Um, I knew the basics of it, but uh, when I did my homework, I realized that, wow, this is a historically significant case. 
it's actually still being used today, 30 years later, as a case study by some of the investigators who participated in this case in 1993. They're using it to train future investigators. And to me, I was kind of surprised that a 30-year-old case was still that relevant. You know, I thought, well, technology's changed, the world's changed, like the internet didn't really exist at the time. And so I thought, how is this case still relevant 30 years later? And then I started doing kind of preliminary interviews and I pre-report the heck out of every story and every book project. And, you know, I think I did 20 or 30 interviews just to see like, who's out there? Are they willing to talk to me? What is the general, like, you know, what happened here and why does it matter? And that's when I realized the historical significance and also the lack of a book of record about the case. There were two books um, published in uh, probably 1994, 95, like right after the case, but before the trial. And I read them and they are filled with gaps. And, and also some of them are filled with a lot of errors. And I they, they didn't have access to primary sources. A lot of it was just based on new, newspaper clips. So I thought, my gosh, you know, I, I think Eddie Jr. said you might be the only one who could write this book because you would have access to people that no journalist would ever have access to. And so I felt like kind of uh, a calling isn't really the right word, but just a responsibility that, wow, this is a major piece of American history and I've got the skills to do it and I've got the access. And if I don't do it, a lot of this is going to be lost to history and what a shame. And when I started getting to know the um, the agents and the detectives, I realized how deeply personal it was to them. Um, uh, at least half of them cried in our interviews. And I thought, you know, this this needs to be told. And so that's that's kind of how it came about. But that was back in 2016. And then I wrote the proposal and I shopped the book and it almost sold. And then the deal fell through. And I remember thinking like I should feel devastated right now and really disappointed but instead I felt this really strong gut instinct that it's not the right time it you know I've learned that stories tend to choose me and that um you can't force a story to be ready before it's ready and and it will let you know when it's ready but if you try to force it it won't go well <laughs> so I sort of set it aside worked on um, a bunch of other projects several books and then um, moved to Idaho and met a woman who became a friend and I casually mentioned this case to her and her name's Meg Levi. And she jumped out of her chair and said, I've been a true crime fan since I was in sixth grade and this is one of my top five cases. I really think that you were a little ahead of the market and the time is now and you really need to write this book and you need to do it in time for the 30th anniversary. And so I went, oh, okay. And um, she offered to join me as a researcher to help me get it done. And um, I've never had that kind of relationship before with anyone. She's a PhD researcher and a good good friend. And um, yeah, so that's that's kind of how it came came about. And then it did did obviously sell to another publisher. And um, they've been really terrific. I find it really interesting in your relationship to this story and also this genre. I mean, you you lead in the preface by saying, I don't consume true crime. I've never felt drawn to it. And there's this fundamental ambivalence you have it seems to so many elements of what has turned this into a genre that is now parodied commonly by SNL. Um, there seem to be some misogynistic undertones to the way it is attacked, but it is also quite curious. It's overwhelmingly a female genre in terms of its audience and the appetite for this material. So I just thought, 
a couple of points of comparison because you have this incredible access, obviously, um, with with your husband and and his father. Um, but you being ambivalent seems diametrically opposed to most people that endeavor in this genre. And I just wonder how that assists assisted you in the project that you're it's not a passion project it's not michelle mcnamara who has a lifetime of obsession with true crime and then finds the case where you could argue it, it killed her to do it she was so hell-bent on it my hope is that it's um and and i don't want to come across as critical or judgmental of like you know people who do love true crime it's just not my thing um but i i hope that makes my book a little bit different because I don't approach the story with I'm burning to know who did it or you know I, I don't really want to I mean I don't know like so many people they want to know like what motivated the killer and for me my motivation was more like that of a story midwife that I want to capture this correctly I want to help the people who are involved in this and that includes FBI agents detectives volunteers who searched for Polly um you know I talked to the media I talked to a whole bunch of people who really deeply cared and I I wanted to help them tell their story and so as a writer you know I, I think that as a I, I didn't think of this as a genre book like it, it is a book about a true crime but I would I guess I prefer to think about it as a narrative nonfiction, you know, a meticulously reported narrative nonfiction book that happens to be about a crime and the people who really tried to save her and what it meant, um, you know, what what came of it and what it meant to them and to the world, really. And so my, my hope is that it is seen more as literary nonfiction or narrative nonfiction. It's actually not super literary. I um, exercised a great deal of restraint and not in, in kind of suppressing any literary authory uh, literary authorial voice like I didn't want too much you know jazz hands writing in it I just wanted to kind of get it out of the way of the story let it tell itself and and be um, a vehicle for getting it out there in a really accurate form in a way that I think draws together so many different points of view and represents the complexity of investigation both from the inside and from the outside for the volunteers who were um, kind of engaged with both the media and the investigators. It was this perfect storm of, um, you know, an, a joint investigation of the FBI and police uh, media interests that was really daily and nationwide and worldwide at, at some point. And volunteer coordinators who were um, trying to help investigators, but also trying to hold them accountable and also trying to keep the media involved um, the really interesting thing about their role is that um, they uh, there were several people who really understood the media and had kind of managed the press before. And they understood that um, in the two months where there really were no viable suspects, or at least none that the investigators were ready to announce to the press, they were kind of like, we've, we've you know, no new leads, no, no key direction. And the volunteers realized that the press was going to lose interest because they weren't getting anything new. And if the press went away, the story would fade from the pub public attention. And so the volunteer leaders said, we need to give stories to the press about the volunteers and the community effort and how much we care and what we're trying to do to keep the press involved. Because if they kept the press happy and involved, 
the press would continue to, you know, cover the case. And the that meant that the public would be aware and would keep sending in leads. So there were like 60,000 tips that came in from the public in these two months and 12,000 actionable investigations. And so much of that had to do with, I think, the volunteer um, leaders' management of the media. Yeah. Well, another thing about this case that interests me is how much Polly's name comes up as a victim. Because I I, I never watched uh, Twin Peaks when it came out three years before this kidnapping and murder. But what was so novel about it, like in becoming obsessed with the show, is that David Lynch was really intrigued that we really fundamentally as a, as a society care about the killer and we care about who catches the killer. And we forget the name of the victim because essentially the victim is just a commodity that's transactional so we can move on to next week's show where there's a new victim, ideally a female who's white, um, that a white audience will respond to. And he put the victim right at the front of not who killed her, but who was she? And that was a paradigm shift in in presenting a crime that people cared about was the victim was at the front because who she was explored who the whole community was that was exposed to grief which was largely absent from most true crime that was presented prior to that so i just wonder why do you think polly was a victim that was so so much at the, at the front of this crime i know obviously catching the killer was a massive aspect of it but polly's story was profound in its in its purchase on society in a way that so many other victims we we don't even care so often it seems like in hindsight they're so forgotten so why was polly why did she resonate so much with um with people i think it's because she was on that cusp of between cute and beautiful she was still kind of a child, but growing into adolescence, she was still very innocent. Um, she was very beautiful and charming. And I think that she captured the heart of America because I think so many people could look at her and see someone that they knew and loved, whether it was a daughter or a niece or a friend or you know, someone that they cared about. She kind of represented that. And she represented, I think, what, what can be taken from us, even if we're not doing the wrong thing. Like, you know, Eve wasn't doing anything wrong as a parent. She was doing all the right things. She looked after Polly. She, I mean, she was a great mom. And to think that you could do all the things right and this could still happen um, really hit a nerve in people. Like, you know, when I, I think it like activated the, the empathy machine that a good story does. It's like, wow, you know, there but for the grace of God go I, right? That could have been any of us. And so I think that that, when people can empathize and connect and relate in that way, it tends to, um, I don't know, do what what it did back in 1993, which is just capture the media, capture the public attention. I mean, there were stories in, you know, abroad and in, in other countries far, far away. And I think that's why. Yeah, I mean, I, I stumbled upon the Columbia School of Journalism had a, are you press worthy or not? And you had to input details about yourself and this was based on where the media has been um this is all predicated on the so-called missing white woman syndrome but the older you are the less coverage it gets um if you're female it gets a lot more coverage than if you're male um urban versus rural urban gets a lot more coverage white gets by far the most coverage in the media black and hispanic the lowest 
Mm-hmm. And I just wondered, just just on that front of of because I was thinking about with your case, where you have such a famous case that you're excavating from, versus like um, Nick Broomfeld did the Grim Sleeper in Los Angeles, who's murdering black prostitutes. I, I think they were all black prostitutes, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but the shocking thing was all of the advocates for those victims just saying, why does nobody care? And the police had that designation, no human involved for the black prostitutes who were being murdered, which which was discovered. So I just wonder if you could speak to that, like just how the media um, stirs the drink of this in terms of what what we get to hear about, which victims resonate with us versus uh, according to them as opposed to an organic representation of, of what we might be drawn to? Um, it's a great question. And I became you know, increasingly aware of the missing white woman syndrome while researching this book. And um, one interesting uh, story that I became aware of that I had never heard about is the story of Georgia Lee Moses, who was a 12-year-old girl who um, a, a few years after Polly was kidnapped, was found um, naked and dead on the side of 101 in Petaluma. And I was really taken aback that I had not ever heard of Georgia Limosis. And um, uh, part of that's probably because I don't follow the true crime world. There there are podcasts and, and stories about her. But um, I, I was shocked that so no one really mentioned her until um, I spoke with Kate and Jillian. Um, I deliberately try not to talk much about my conversations with Kate and Jillian because they were kind of on background to help me fact check. But I do want to share and have permission to share that they both mentioned separately Georgia Lee Moses and how they remember seeing posters and learning about her through flyers that her family had posted. And, you know, there was no news coverage. There was no, you know, public um, outpouring of support. It's a little bit apples and oranges in that Georgia was not reported. She was, she was, she was found slain before she was reported missing. And my, my friend Meg pointed out a really good point that communities don't search for killers. They search for missing kids. And so, um, but still um, Georgia Lee's sister is, you know, almost 30 years later, I want to say it's like 25 years later is still searching for her, her sister's killer. And I, I don't think that, you know, she is getting anywhere near the traction that, you know, that Polly's family got and and what a tragedy, you know? Um, so it, when, when I started looking at kind of historically the household names, I, I realized, wow, gosh, they are all white and most of them are girls and most of them are beautiful. And there are just so many, you know, indigenous people, um, people of color, boys that, that are just, don't get any coverage at all. And, and it is such a shame. Um, I, I can't speak for the media in, in why that is, but it just, I think it speaks to a bigger societal problem of like, who do we care about? Like whose, whose stories speak to us? And I feel like every victim deserves a book. Every, every person who goes through this, every family, they deserve their own book. You know, it is their, it is their personal 9-11 and that matters. Um, why don't they? And I worried that my book would contribute to that problem that, you know, oh, here's another book about a missing white woman, a missing a beautiful girl. But my hope is that I could maybe address some of that in the book and make people more aware of it as I had to kind of be educated and in, in the process of reporting. 
and um, and and ideally maybe become a slightly more sensitive or aware consumers of true crime. And again, I don't want that to come across as like judgy of true crime people because or true crime consumers. It's just it was such a new um, genre to me that I I don't know. I don't even know if I approached it differently from a typical true crime writer. I'm not sure. Other than, you know, I wasn't out to solve anything. I wasn't a detective. I was a a historian and story midwife, you know. Right. So. Well, no, I mean, it's it's interesting now that you say that, because I was thinking two years before this case, Polly's case, um, there was a famous case where I grew up of a child named Michael Donahue, who I think he was six, and he was kidnapped, I think, going to his mother's flag football practice in Victoria, British Columbia, and it was amplified into one of the biggest cases in, in Canadian history. He's still never been found over th- 30 years later. But while that was getting such incredible coverage, and I think over 11,000 tips, mm-hmm. there was a serial killer of mainly indigenous prostitutes where where I used to learn to box, like in that area of, I think, teenage prostitutes, but many of them were runaways from all over the country by this pig farmer named Robert Picton, who mm-hmm. was murdering all these women and feeding them to his pigs, but sort of like we mentioned with the, the grim sleeper, they were not a concern or a priority for the police at the time. Whereas a Michael Dunahy, this adorable little boy, um, that seemed to resonate with with the audience who was consuming the news more. It, and I didn't even think of it at the time with, with both of those cases. Um, I wanted to ask you what the advantages or disadvantages are. I mean, if you were doing a case that was obscure that nobody had ever heard of, Mm-hmm. How you might approach that versus a case like this, which in its time was probably the most reported on kidnapping in American history. I mean, this was kind of OJ before OJ in terms of its magnitude. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't know. Um, this will be my first and last true crime book, so I don't know that I'll have to think about that again. But I do think that one of the... Um, sources of pressure I felt and put on myself was what can I share that's new that isn't already out there whether that's more detail um revelations that I can dig out of the case files um or insights that people don't really realize about this case and what was interesting is I feel like so many people think they know this case inside and out and when I was kind of you know doing like really unofficial market research, you know, I would go to book clubs when I was talking about what stands in the storm and people would say like, what are you working on next? And I'd say, well, I'm thinking about a book about the polyclass kidnapping. And a lot of people would gasp and be like, I remember that. And so many of them didn't even remember how it ended, whether she lived or died. And I was so struck by that. Um, The true crime community definitely remembers and remembers like the main beats of the case. But I noticed that in most of the stories told about it, most of the coverage, there's this, you know, she's kidnapped, this happens. And then two months later, and they missed this whole two months of the investigation where, oh my goodness, so much was happening, but most of it was invisible to outsiders. And um, there were so many red herrings and moments of hope and then despair. And so, so much work went into this um, that I really thought that that needs to be you know, I don't know. I, I wanted to address that too. For example, there was another um, prime prime suspect or subject in the terms of the FBI that most people never knew about. I don't think it's ever been reported on. 
and he um his name was Xavier Garcia Garcia and he was known internally um to investigators as Garcia Garcia and he was i want to say like something like 10 days after Polly's abduction he was caught trying to break into the home of a 12-year-old girl who was home alone with her mother and he had a rape kit and he had a history of um attempted like of of molesting girls in and um attempted kidnappings i believe he had a a lot of priors um and they they did a ton of investigation on him he looked like the composite picture um that was really close to the actual kidnapper richard allen davis but garcia garcia looked a lot like this guy his um you know, his background and behavior matched the FBI profile of the type of criminal who would prey on someone like Polly. Um, and they even, you know, they did searches of his home and car and they found, um, you know, all, all the things that you would use to kidnap and, and rape someone. And he had even um, a yellow headband. And um, people who know this case remember there was uh, in the first composite sketch, there was a yellow bandana. And then later in the second sketch, there was no yellow bandana. And there was some talk about did the bandana exist? One witness remembered it, the other didn't. But I mean, to the point that like he had a yellow headband in, you know, it really made me aware of how like in the absence of the, the real subject, uh, someone can really look like the right guy. And I could see how it would be pretty easy to jump on the wrong guy when, you know, you're you're feeling so much pressure to to catch this guy and solve this case and find Polly. But, you know, investigators didn't, um, you know, didn't arrest him. But there was some internal, you know, tension over should, you know, see our guy or not. Anyway, I was kind of a, ten a tangent, but. Oh, it's fascinating. Um, I wonder, you, you mentioned earlier um that kind of every victim deserves a book, deserves people to get the nuances of it. Mm -hmm. um, we we talked privately, I guess a month ago or so. I, I'm also I've been also for three years been researching a true crime book myself, and we, we're coming at this from very opposite poles because you were not seeking out to do this, and a lot of the access was there due due to your proximity <laughs> with your father-in-law. And obviously, you had to do a ton of work beyond that. But um, I spent three years digging into a story that almost everybody involved in it wanted nothing to do with their story being told. Right. So when you say every victim deserves a book, I totally understand that point of view. But what about the other side of it of people who would really rather you not monetize their story and amplify it and get a lot more people interested in it and the whole re-traumatizing element because i i've been battling that for three years is every single person i'm trying to coax into talking is just saying this is a story to you but this is my life and i this is the worst day of my life even on both sides of the crime because in my in my in my story's case um and there's just so much resistance and so many threats of people saying do you understand what this will do to me or, or just dead silence of people just, we have no comment, we don't want this sort of thing. And I just I just wonder what your point of view of it is because you were not seeking out true crime, you're not a true crime obsessive. And yet, did you face 
um, people who were very opposed to just embarking on a project like this? Um, that's a really good question. And I think, you know, I, that would, be, would have been very hard for me personally to deal with what you're dealing with. Um, you know, I feel I've felt at times almost kind of guilty for um, not how easy it was. That is not the right word, but really how the doors opened without me necessarily like if a door doesn't open, I don't kick it down. I back away and I find another door. And um, I approached like the, the you know, the one thing, I don't want to say gap because I tried to give them voice, but um, Polly's family didn't want to talk to me for this book. Um, no one said, we don't want you to do this really. I mean, I approached Eve um, when I first started the project and I think I, I approached her with Eddie and she had a good relationship with Eddie senior. Um, and she basically said, I, I'm sorry, I can't help you. It's still too painful, but I wish you the best of luck. And so that to me was, you know, different from her saying, I wish you would not do this. Um, Polly's father, Mark Kloss, um, I, I reached out to him twice. And um, basically when I reach out to people, especially like really everyone, but but particularly victims or family members um, of victims, my, my outreach is basically, I try to come at them in a way that doesn't set them back on their heels. So I try to first go to someone that they, they know and trust who can vet me and then who can say, I'm going to introduce you. Or, you know, I, I basically have said, you know, can say this person that, you know, and trust has met me. Um, if you want to, you know, to vet me, you can talk to them. You can talk to other people that I've written about um, and told their traumatic stories. And I, I just kind of say, you know, if this is a big decision for you to make, um, I'd like to offer to meet with you totally off the record with no expectations. You can grill me. You can ask me anything. Why am I doing this? What do I want to do? What is it involved? And then you can then take some time to vet me. I will give you, you know, I'll put you in touch with like these other people that I've written about and I will give you time to make a good decision, but I want to give you the opportunity to make an informed decision. And I, I feel like that involves like a conversation. Um, and if you say no, I will not push. I will respect your boundaries. And so I did that pretty much with everyone. And, you know, I, I, I didn't hear back from Mark and I respected that, you know, he might have his own story to tell. Um, and, and then, uh, but, and, but I, I made sure that um, Eddie senior who was in contact with him, you know, I, I was like, Eddie, just make sure Mark knows about the book. Like, I don't want it to be a surprise. I don't want to find out that he didn't get my emails or whatever. Um, when I approached Kate and Jillian, I sent um, a letter to someone they knew and trusted and then asked that person to to forward the letter. And then when I didn't hear back, I assumed that um, the answer was a no. And then I just kind of started losing sleep and feeling like, what if they didn't get the letter? It's unlikely, but what if they didn't get it? And so I, I found another way to reach out and basically said, hi, I just... I don't want to bug you. I don't want to, I'm not here to push. I just want to make sure you've got my letter. Can you just tell me that? Like, you know, if, if you don't want to talk to me, just tell me that you've um, made that informed decision. Cause if I later found out that you never heard from me and felt left out or, or weren't consulted, I would feel horrible. And so I was really surprised when um, they hadn't received my letter and did agree to talk to me. And Julian talked to me on the record and Kate talked to me on background and didn't want to be quoted, but really, really helped me um, write with more empathy and nuance and sensitivity 
um, about a lot of things. And so like, I'm really, really grateful. So I guess my answer or advice would be that, um, you know, when you're telling the story of someone else's like worst thing that ever happened to them, like giving them agency is important. And I don't think that that is done very much in journalism. And it actually is kind of looked down upon by some journalists, which is interesting. Like when I, I'm old enough to have grown up and been trained in the era when you never, ever, ever share a story with the source. And then as I kind of, you know, got into really complex narrative nonfiction and trauma, I learned that some great reporters and writers that I admired would read their story to someone who had spent a year with them, you know, for the story. And I was like, well, that makes sense to me because man, if, if someone's trusting me to tell the story of the worst day of their lives, the least I could do is like trust them to help me get it right. And so I started the practice with my first book where, um, you know, I wrote about families who had lost a grown child to the tornadoes and I sat down with them and I had a like three to four hour reading of every word of every chapter in which their child appeared. And um, I didn't actually hand the manuscript over or did like forwarding it digitally is kind of sketchy because it can get a, get forwarded or get away from you. But I felt like that that's an important part of my process. And, you know, it, it gives people agency in what is being told and the words that are being used to tell it, because often you're writing about how people feel and you have as a writer, a better vocabulary to put that emotion into words, but you don't want to use the wrong words you know, or use words where they say, no, that, that actually doesn't feel true to me. So to, to me, I just, you know, I involve them to a great deal in the process and I read to them and I, um, I listen to them and I, you know, I ask questions and I fact check my own assumptions at every turn. Cause you know, your assumptions are often wrong and can appear in like even the wording of a question. Um, there could be an embedded assumption that really like is hurtful or offensive. So I guess I would say that I believe in giving um, people that you're writing about agency and letting them choose the way they want to be involved. Um, if, like I said, if someone just wants to talk to me on background, I can, you know, uh, I read Kate the, the, you know, the chapters in which she appeared and she was able to at least know what's going to come out there. And, um, you know, so I, yeah, but it's funny because at the same time, you know, I feel like, uh, so certain journalists judge me for it because they're like, oh, well, then you're, you know, you're giving your sources too much power. But I kind of, I don't look at them as sources, they're characters, they're people. And if someone um, was writing a story about me, I would want agency. I want, would want a little bit of say, to say like, no, that doesn't sound right. Or if you put this in, I think this this could cause some damage that you don't anticipate. Because there's so many things that, you know, it's never what you think. Um, so anyway, that's a long way of saying, um, that's my best advice. No, no, it's useful. I just, I think it's also interesting. Like I notice now I, I hate being photographed and I'm always expected to like, what's wrong with you to not want to commemorate any occasion with a photograph. And I say, well, I'm not trying to say you can't photograph yourself, but I really don't want to do this. I don't want it to go on social media. I don't want to participate. And it, you're always looked at like a complete asshole. And an extreme version of that would be somebody like J.D. Salinger, where you have every opportunity to have a platform and you say, well, actually, I don't want any. 
Mm-hmm. I would just like to be left alone. And yes. there's something wrong with that. Like his son talked about, you go from being strange to weird to antisocial to sort of famously, dementedly antisocial, et cetera, et cetera. Like it's, it's pathologized. Mm-hmm. So I just wonder in this area where number one thing that kids want to be is famous. They don't even <laughs> necessarily care what it is. If you were saying if you if you were participating with somebody telling a story, how how you would allow agency. What about when people just say, I don't want to participate. I don't want this done. So you are going against my wishes to do it. And I'm not saying that happened in this book. I'm just curious it, for, for you personally, because I, I really struggle with it because I, I have come across a number of people that say that. And I try to say, well, I I think there's. A, a positive impact that can be taken from your story that I would like to offer people. I see value in it. And they say, yeah, that's great. But for me, it, it damages me and it hurts my family and it causes me a lot of difficulty. I've done nothing to attract attention since this thing you're interested in. Um, how do I get away from this? How do I extricate myself from this thing that people like you, not, not you, I'm saying him saying it to me, um, are never going to leave me alone. And I don't have a good answer. Like, <laughs> That's tough. I don't have a good answer either. I mean, my litmus test, you know, because also just because you know something doesn't mean it belongs in the book. And yeah. I feel like there's a, um, you know, a cohort of journalists who are like, you know, if you learn it, it's it's fair game. And I, I kind of weighed things like, okay, what is, um, what do I stand to, gain from this and what do I stand to lose or what does the reader stand to gain from it and what can can be lost or as uh, I think um, my friend Chip Scanlon uh, who writes a great newsletter and taught at Pointer said that he was he was quoting someone else and I wish I could give them credit but I can't remember who was who was quoting but it was like you know maximize truth minimize harm and so how can you do that and there's one part of the book that I agonized over for like weeks, if not months. And it was how to describe the position in which Polly's body was found. And I, you know, I looked at crime scene photographs and saw things that I will never be able to unsee that haunt me and will haunt me to my grave. Um, And I didn't think the reader needed to see all of that, but they needed to know some particular information about the disposition of the clothing and the geometry of, of, the limbs basically because uh richard allen davis was not convicted of 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 raping her or molesting her um they didn't have enough evidence to prove that and that seems to be the only thing he truly cares about um is you know he he willfully admitted to to the murder but he didn't want to be branded as 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 a child molester possibly because you know, bad things happen to child molesters in prison. And he had been in prison many times. And I feel like to hold him fully accountable, I wanted to give the reader key information that um, wasn't enough to convict him in court, but might allow them to come to their own conclusion. Like, I don't want to tell you what I think, but I want the information to be there um, for people to come to their own conclusion. And I felt it was really necessary, but I agonized over that and I, I workshopped it and tried to do it as respectfully as possible, but that, you know, this is not gonna, this is going to displease some people, but if this is the book of record, I felt like it really needed to be in. Otherwise it was a big error of omission. So I don't know. And 
people are going to have different opinions. People are going to react to different things. And, you know, you just have to think again, you know, what is, what is to be gained from this? What is, you know, what is to be lost and uh, what's the cost of this? And then, you know, do what feels right in your stomach. Like I navigate a lot by my gut feelings and, you know, I overthink everything, but I, I listen to like how my gut feels and, um, you know, in the end, I'll, I'll take something out if it just doesn't, if it feels like too much. Yeah. And I think, I, I think it's fascinating because I've had that experience also where you make a choice that could be actually a very difficult choice. And you're explicit about making that choice um, in terms of the structure of something or the, the approach. And then the criticism comes out as if you haven't consciously made that choice. Yeah. But I do think, you know, that's where the notes and footnotes come in where you can you can tell the reader who wants to know why did you do this you can do that and the reader who doesn't want to know all the reason, re reasons can just keep going and i think that that's really important and that's what you know it's our prerogative and our our privilege to be able to to do that so like if people want to read 50 pages of notes that tell you like exactly where everything in this chapter came from then you know they can do that and the people who don't can just read the narrative and and you know, live the story that way. What do you, what do you think people are going to make for people that weren't around at the time? Mm -hmm. um, how do you see this landing with the public 30 years after the crime captured the imagination of the country? Well, it's interesting because I think that, um, I think I'm going to have two audiences divided by age. And I think that people of a certain age are going to be like, Oh my God, I remember where I was when that happened. Um, it's it's almost like, you know, one of those moments like 9-11 or the Unabomber where you remember it takes you back to a point in time and, and, and place. And um, this was just such a pivotal moment in the 1990s. You know, people will remember Winona Ryder's participation in the case because she, um, you know, offered a $200,000 reward for Polly's safe return. And um, people will remember the Soul Asylum video of Runaway Train. On the other hand, there's going to be a whole generation of, of true crime readers that have never heard this name and are going to come to it and and I think be really interested in it. And they're going to be like, oh, Winona Ryder, we know her from Stranger Things, you know, as an actress playing the mother of a kidnapped child. And so I think that there um, there's going to be interest from from both sides. My hope is that it, again, you know, makes people thoughtful readers of the genre and, you know, more empathetic with the complexity of an investigation. You know, I, I was very worried about being accused of pandering or you know, being an FBI puff piece. And um, so far, the, you know, the reviews have said, like, it's actually pretty objective. And I did note the mistakes in the case, like some of the errors that were really useful and learned from. Um, so, um I don't know. My, my hope is that it, it actually could possibly um, open the door to a little bit of healing in Petaluma, which still hurts from this. You know, there are people who it's still too painful to talk about. But um, I think that there there's some information in the book that shows the legacy of this case and the legacy beyond three strikes. A lot of people just say, oh, this you know triggered three strikes. And it did play a role in that. However, um, the legacy within the FBI, like this literally changed how the FBI investigates crimes. There's a lot of um, historical asides involving the FBI and some um, 
procedural and um, technological firsts that were tested and proven in, in this case and then adopted, you know, bureau wide. And I and and then, you know, because it has been taught for 30 years by so many people as a case study, the lessons learned in this case have been shared forward in multitudes. And I think that, um, you know, at the end of the book, you get to meet a 12 year old girl who was kidnapped from her home at knife point by a stranger six months after Polly. And because the investigators who worked on Polly's case did a debriefing and they invited other investigators, other agencies to come in, you know, and listen in. And they basically said, here's what went right. Here's what went wrong. Here's what we learned from this. If this should ever happen to you, here's what you should do. Well, the police chief who responded to that kidnapping had been to that briefing and had written down some notes and he picked up the phone and called Pat Parks at Petaluma PD and said, um, you know, here's, here's what I'm doing. What else can I be doing? And as a result, this this girl is alive and knows it because of Polly. And so I think that um, that kind of finding, you know, nothing can change how tragic Polly's fate is. Nothing makes it less sad. And I don't want to diminish that tragedy and that sadness. But my hope is that the book frames it with meaning in that it wasn't for nothing. Like we learn from it and incredibly beautiful and powerful things happen because of what we learned. And, um, you know, that I, I don't like it when people say like, oh, everything happens for a reason. Like, I don't think that a lot of victims or families of victims would agree with that. But I do think that um, sometimes in spite of horrible things and sometimes even because of them, beautiful things come from our brokenness. And that's what most of my work is about. Yeah. Um, I wonder in terms of a story like this and stories like this of high profile crimes um, that really capture the imagination. Like I did not really have a day of my childhood without being terrorized by the thought that somebody was out in a van and going to abduct me. And the school was very happy to perpetuate that terror and all strangers were a threat. Um, anybody who was kind to you or friendly, who was a stranger was far more of a threat. Clearly they had an agenda to molest or kidnap or abduct me. And I just wonder just with, how scared kids are because of boogeyman stories like Polly's. Right. I, I don't know what the answer is, and I'm not saying it's unreasonable to, to cover the stories, but there's something about the way that they're covered that seems to perpetuate a wildly distorted sense of risk relative to the reality, objectively, that we know the impact it definitively has is kids are terrorized by this as are their parents in ways that are um you know re really causing a crisis in in kids so I, I don't know i just i just was curious when you when you took on this story and just thought i i i guess where i would start with is what did kidnapping what role did it occupy in your imagination as a little girl growing up were you scared of that threat no i but I, I think I'm a little bit of an outlier. Like I tried to run away when I was still in diapers. <laughs> I told my mom that mm. I wanted to, you know, go live with someone else. And she drove me around the neighborhood and um, said, okay, pick a house. She tried to call my bluff. and I, I picked a house and I, where a guy was gardening and I got out of the car and I went up and was like, hey, mister. Mm. <laughs> so like, I think that I'm cut from a little bit of different cloth. Um, I just, you know, didn't grow up 
feeling afraid. I do remember, you know, <laughs> when I was somewhere between 12 and 15, I, I I lived at a water ski camp out in the middle of the Mojave Desert, kind of by my, not by myself, but with coaches training all summer. And I would ride my bike in the desert. And once a windowless van followed me, and that was scary <laughs> in the <laughs> desert. But for the most part, I didn't, um, I don't know. I, I'm, I, I imagine that kidnapping is something that parents worry a lot more about than kids. So I can't really, I don't know. I, I can't speak to feeling drawn to it as a topic, but, but I do think that you, you make a good point that it is statistically so unlikely and rare, but the fear of it um, is, is disproportionate to the actual risk. And I think it's because it is, it is our deepest fear is that something so precious as a child will be taken from us, you yeah. know? That's like in to most parents, that's scarier than like losing your own life, right? No, no, no. I, I I get it. It's just sort of like every situation that scares people in America seems to lead to a massive rush to get guns to protect yeah. yourself. And statistically, you're far more likely to kill yourself with a gun accidentally or especially intentionally than to fend off some perceived intruder that's coming for you. And I'm just like, why are people so afraid? Why is there such a profound sense of insecurity as things get safer and safer and safer? It's just very alarming to me that when you travel to other countries, like the moment I get to the airport, it doesn't matter where I'm going to, 80% of my stress falls away Mm -hmm. from what it's like to be in America. Mm -hmm. And it just seems like we glorify elements of crime and fetishize it in a way that... the implications are are not it's not good for us to metabolize to metabolize right. it the way we're doing it. And I'm not saying that's the way you handle it. I thought you handled it very responsibly, but just just that it's the genre that you're entering into, um, it's it's awfully salacious. You know, like O.J. Simpson got his trial right around this time, got way more coverage than healthcare in Congress. You know, way way more than almost any other issue um, in terms of news coverage. And I don't think it was because of its vital importance to the national discourse or democracy. It's just where we're at. And it changed journalism, too. I mean, tabloid journalism led the way with it. And like places like the New York Times were like, okay, if this is what the public wants, we're going to give it to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I do think that, you know, they're good stories have tension. And I do think that sometimes that tension comes from things being sensationalized things i mean that, that something like this is sensational but um and and that that's i don't know i can't i can't really speak to the news judgment of the media i just i do think there you know tension's a big a big element and that this the tension is you know naturally there i guess last question is just what what emotional toll did it take on you you're you know we're close to people that were directly associated with this and the impact it had on their lives. And I think like the first time I really got into true crime was I found out my grandmother's favorite story was in cold blood and she was completely obsessed with it when it came out. And I, that's where I first learned about Truman Capote and that the book kind of ruined his life. Mm. Um, There was something about his own degree of sensitivity or ambition with with what he was going to do with in his mind the book of the decade with this crime um that took a massive toll so i just wonder what now that this is 
30 years after the crime and the book is coming out, um, when you look back at what the, what, seven years that you've worked on this project, what, what, um, what has been the pros and cons of, of embarking on this genre that you were never particularly drawn to in the first place? That's a great question. This book took a huge toll um, on my physical and mental health. Um, it, in addition to being just, you know, a, a lot of physical stress of just, you know, I think the, the writing of it was very compressed um, for a number of reasons, including I caught COVID and couldn't think very well because of the brain fog. And I had um, projects that were committed to in different years collide at the same time. Pretty much everything happened last October. I had um, two features and a documentary due and a book and, um, and, and then some other stuff. But I think um, I thought a lot about, you know, vicarious joy. It's possible to experience vicarious joy when a friend uh, goes through something great, right? Sure. Um, I think that vicarious trauma is is kind of a thing. Um, I feel like I'm good at my job because of empathy and stories are really empathy machines. And when I'm doing it well, I feel what my characters feel um, to the best of my ability. Um, and to make the writer feel to make the reader feel something, I have to feel it. And if I want to move a reader, I have to feel that emotion. And I think that I just felt a lot of really strong emotions the whole way of, of writing this book. And a lot of them were not happy emotions. Um, you know, I think uh, it, I think the cortisol that I experienced made me gain weight. I, um, you know, had my blood pressure is like at hypertension levels, even though I meditate and eat pretty well and exercise. And I, I feel like I better write about something else and get healthy. Mm. You know, I need to be around. So um, would I do it again? You know, I, I think if the book goes out there and is helpful in some way to whether it's, you know, investigators learning from it to historians, readers, my hope is that the book is useful and and maybe helps someone in in some way that I can't imagine, you know, someone that maybe I'll never meet. And I feel like as a journalist doing this kind of work, you have to believe that the work is is worth doing. The work is going to help someone out there. And it's not about you, the writer. It's not about fame or ego. It's about putting something into the world that is useful. So, um, yeah, I, I really don't want to do any more true crime. I need to take a break from, uh, you know, writing about trauma because I feel, you know, at a very visceral cellular level, this affected me. I mean, I don't want to get like gross, but like I had an OBGYN appointment that went really badly because I was thinking about what might have happened on that hill. And like my body like reacted to this story, like it, it lives in my body. And so I, I feel like it's worth saying for other people wanting to do this work that it is, you know, it comes at a high cost. And I think it's not something that anyone should take on lightly. I guess I'm, I'm glad I did it. I'm glad it's done. And I, I really want to write about fishing now. <laughs> and I really want to write something that will allow me to, you know, write with a tone of bemusement because this was, this was very dark. 
And then finally, I just want to say that, you know, this story really caused me to question my own worldview. Um, you know, I'm like, I don't think I'm naive, but I think I'm, I'm very earnest. Some might say painfully earnest. And I have always believed that people are born mostly good and then, you know, bad things happen to them and it, it, it changes the course of their life. And it, that when people behave badly, it often has to do with how they've been treated by someone else or by external forces and the trauma that they've been through sort of forges like, you know, some of the bad behaviors. But this case made me really question that because I, as much as I didn't want to make the story about the perpetrator, I, I really wanted to know, like, I just don't believe anyone's all good or all bad. Like, I really love characters like Darth Vader, where you think he's the epitome of evil, and then you you meet young Anakin Skywalker and realize he goes to the dark side because of love. And then he's a complicated, you know, then he's just more real. Tony Soprano, characters like that. And um, I looked really hard for evidence that that Davis was, like, a, a sweet kid or, a like, you know, a good dude and was hurt. And then, you know, turned into someone who isn't, isn't good. Um, and I, I didn't really find what I was looking for. And that made me, that really chilled me. And it, and it, it caused a fear in me that I, I had never had before. You know, I didn't grow up feeling afraid. But the fact that, you know, people can just kind of, I, I mean, he has siblings who were raised in uh, the same suboptimal environment you know he didn't have a good childhood but neither did his siblings and they didn't murder anyone so that that whole question of nature and nurture and where 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 does evil come from I I had to really think a lot about that and um you know I still I still am mostly optimistic I'm still pretty earnest but I feel like there's a part of me that's sad (laughs) forever because it's okay yeah, I, I don't I never know how to react. I remember hearing about the impact of of JFK on my parents who were one was in Budapest and the other was in Vancouver. And when I went to see the spot where he was killed next to his wife, there were people photographing doing selfies and laughing. And I just thought how do we how does it become this? Mm-hmm. How does like a trauma like that where you know how many people have been impacted just become something fun. And I don't know if it's like why we joke about something that we'd otherwise start crying about, but it's a strange thing. Like, and I was thinking about it with, with your book. I mean, I I was trying to find it as you were talking about how many pages you went through to investigate this story. Cause somewhere you detailed a whole list. Um, and it was freakish, the amount of research that you did. Um, and I have felt incredibly disturbed. Like I, I've been going through a fraction of what you did. I got everything that I possibly could on my crime. But to look into psychiatric assessments and parole assessments and victim impact statements and just the granular detail of the worst day of all these people's life and everybody trying to bring it to life for a courtroom and you're just going with your imagination, the theater of your imagination, recreating this thing and trying to suspend judgment is really, really hard, Yeah, I found. And um, 
so anyway, I, I really admire what you did with this, and and I I look forward to seeing the response of it reaching people because I I do think this is a genre that's really problematic, and the way you navigated it was was really extraordinary to me. Thank you. Well, my I guess um, you know regardless of what any reviews say, my barometer of success is you know just the reader feels something, and how do the people whose stories I told feel about it. And I just got um, an email. I don't want to, um, I don't want to um, b- break any confidences, but I got an email from someone who was very close to this, who um, declined to participate or just didn't respond to my invitation to participate and, um, and had watched the 2020 show and basically said, you know, I, I wasn't ready to talk about this when when you reached out, but I wanted to say thank you because this is the first time in 30 years that um, a program has has gotten it right. I, I didn't think I was ready to watch this, but it was brilliant, and it was brilliant because it was accurate, and um, it's it feels good to have some the story that's been told inaccurately for so long to finally have it out there clean and clear and accurate, and so that was the nicest review I could get. And I don't, you know, need to make it public who said that, but I just think, you know, if, if the people who are in this, who live this feel like I got it right, then that's, that's enough for me. And it's so weird too, isn't it? Cause that's of course the ultimate objective. And yet there are other times when you do get it right. And the response is fuck you for yeah. getting this right. Right. I know you don't, you don't necessarily write for those, for, you know, but but it's it's nice to know, yeah, when you do get it right. Thank you so much for your time, Kim. I, I really enjoyed the book. And thank you so much. Great questions. You're very thoughtful and very smart. So I, I enjoy our conversation so much. Yeah, no, it was fun. It was very fun. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Tourist Information. The producers are George Alarcon Swaby and myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler. Please subscribe or rate the podcast. It helps us to keep bringing them out. Thanks again for listening.